So I, I think it's an important point that almost all the more moral guerrillas I talk about were fighting as soldiers in an American army. Now they were very irregular soldiers. And one of the ways they were regular is that they were barefoot, they wore scraps of uniforms that carried very outmoded rifles, sometimes no rifles at all. And they were constantly plagued by shortages of ammunition. On the first mission that uh, Adil sent on with his men, uh, they were allowed two rounds of ammunition each to carry out an attack on a, on a Japanese garrison. <laughs> an excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book details the exploits of a Philippine chieftain and how the Moros helped battle the Japanese in World War II. Author Thomas McKenna is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. Today's guest is an anthropologist who has lived and worked for years in Moro communities in the Philippines and has spent decades writing and conducting research on their culture and history. He has won writing and teaching awards and has been invited to present his work on the Moros at Oxford University, the U.S. State Department, and the Council on Foreign Relations. His book is called Moro Warrior, a Philippine chieftain and American schoolmaster and the untold story of the most remarkable resistance fighters of World War II in the Pacific. Author Thomas McKenna joins us now. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Rob. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you, and uh, you have the honor of having the longest book title we've ever had. <laughs> I apologize profusely. <laughs> That's quite all right. I was Tried to fit on the cover, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did it, fit, did it all fit on the cover? <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> now, I read in your bio, in, in writing the story, you lived in the Philippines and um, and worked with some of these uh, people. Could you tell us a little bit about that background? Sure, of course. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and anthropologists um, tend to study traditional societies, indigenous peoples, Margaret Mead being the classic example. Uh, today, those kinds of people tend to be ethnic or religious minorities in modern states. They're outsiders, they're relatively poor and powerless, and sometimes they're rebellious. I first went uh, to Southern Philippines way back in 1985 uh, for my dissertation research. I was there for almost two years. I lived in the community. I learned the language. Uh, that's, a, that's very typical uh, process for uh, an anthropologist. Uh, what was maybe not so typical for me was that um, I was studying the Moros who had just fought a war against Ferdinand Marcos, the president uh, of the Philippines, who declared himself dictator in 1973 and then immediately uh, invaded the Moro homeland. Uh, a number of reasons for that, but he was looking for an excuse uh, to uh, uh, declare himself dictator. Um, Sort of like the, the current war in Ukraine, uh, it was a struggle against great odds, uh, but the Moros fought the, the invading forces to a standstill. I was the first uh, researcher allowed in uh, in 12 years, and I, and I actually went in to study the effect of that war on Moro communities. Uh, and that was also where I met Mohamed Adil, who's the uh, main character in the book. Right. And uh, before we get to Mohamed, I just wanted to ask you uh, if you could characterize the Moro people? Oh, sure. Uh, so the Moros are the indigenous Muslim inhabitants of the Philippines. They're a, a small minority, only 4% uh, 
of the total population. Um, but they're concentrated in the southern uh, part of the country, especially on the large island of Mindanao, which is about the size of a little bigger than Ireland. So it's really big enough to be a country of its own. Uh, it's uh, mountainous, and uh, in 1942, it was still mostly covered in rainforest. There, I think two things that, that really distinguish the Moros. One is that they're the only Philippine people um, never conquered by the Spaniards. The Spaniards ruled the Philippines as a colony for 350 years, but they were never able to conquer or colonize uh, the, uh, the Muslim inhabitants, the Moros of the South. Uh, the second thing that distinguishes them is that they're also the only um, Muslim population ever formally colonized by the United States. So 100 years ago, the United States possessed a Muslim colony uh, in Mindanao. It's the only one of its kind that I know of. It lasted about 40 years from 1902 and 1942. Um, the, the Moros held a, a real special status uh, in America's new Philippine possession that they acquired in 1899, uh, mostly because of American attitudes about them. So if you look at the timeline, 1898 was the Spanish-American War. The, 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 uh, the United States won its first overseas colonies, including the Philippines in 1899. So it was 1886 that Geronimo, the leader of the last major Indian insurrection, uh, surrendered for the last time. 1890 was a Wounded Knee Massacre. So the Indian Wars were a very recent uh, memory for the soldiers serving in the Philippines. Right. The, the Moro fighters that they encountered there starting in about 1902 were very familiar sorts of warriors. They had colorful dress, individual acts of bravery. They carried swords and lances. They were led by chiefs. They were utterly unlike the Filipino soldiers that the Americans had already defeated in the north, the, the Christian uh, uh, soldiers. Uh, who had uniforms and marched in ranks and were led by generals. So the, the Moros were different. They were exotic. Uh, the Americans in general were fascinated with them. Uh, there were many books written about them. Mark Twain wrote about them. Joseph Conrad wrote about them. Uh, but of course, when they resisted uh, occupation, uh, they then became renegades and hostiles. Uh, they were hunted down just as in the Indian Wars. Uh, there were massacres that were larger than the Wounded Knee Massacre. And those wars, the Moro Wars, lasted uh, on and off for almost 15 years. The military occupation of Mindanao didn't end until uh, 1920. Wow. But if you jump forward 20 years, um, in, in late December 1941, the Moros were also some of the first soldiers uh, in the American army to fight the Japanese in jungle warfare, just a couple of weeks after Pearl Harbor. And they fought mostly without guns because... They, it was only 20 years since the Moro Wars, and they were still were not trusted with guns by the Americans, <laughs> and uh, but were willing to go uh, fight in the jungle without guns, and they bested the Japanese soldiers, stopped them in their tracks. It's a, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Amazing. And this larger-than-life figure, Muhammad al-Deel, he gained a reputation as the man who could not be killed. Tell us a little bit about yeah. him. Sure. Well, he, he was an extraordinary individual. Uh, uh, he was, a, uh, he was a, 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 a rare combination of a man of action who was also a, a natural storyteller. Uh, he had a marvelous memory. Uh, I, I uh, worked with him for 10 years. We, we became very close. I uh, became his honorary nephew. I 
stayed in his house uh, and uh, knew, um, knew his family. Um, mm. uh, really, a, really an interesting, interesting individual. He was born in 1925 uh, into a, a family of, of the nobility, of noble blood, but relatively modest means. He was the grandson of two very uh, renowned warriors. They were still singing songs about his grandfathers when uh, he was a young man. They had fought both the Spaniards and the Americans, but his father uh, was part of the first generation who had been conquered uh, by the Americans. He didn't want to be a warrior. Uh, he went to American schools. He learned English. Excuse me. And he became a commercial farmer and a businessman. And he wanted his son to do the same thing. So they were uh, really uh, knocking heads. Uh, Muhammad had a real thirst for adventure. He only wanted to be a warrior. And, and eventually his father gave in um, when World War II broke out in the Philippines. Uh, he eventually sent him off to um, war in 1943. And he armed him. But he also sent for a Sufi master uh, to teach him the secret knowledge of protective magic, which was something that is passed down among, uh, among certain families, among the Moros. So he learned, he spent um, seven consecutive Friday nights uh, learning spells and incantations and prayers to paralyze or beguile your enemy. He, he uh, learned about amulets and potions to protect yourself. So he was very interesting. He was naturally fearless, but he, he also told me that he was very curious to test this protective magic to see if it actually worked. Uh, 18, he became a third lieutenant and then at 19, an acting company commander. And, and this was in MacArthur's guerrilla army in, in the Philippines. Right. Uh, it was called the U.S. Forces in the Philippines. So I, I think it's an important point that almost all of the more moral guerrillas I talk about were fighting as soldiers in an American army. Now, they were very irregular soldiers. And one of the ways they were regular is that um, the supplies from American submarines were very irregular and often didn't reach them. They were barefoot. They wore scraps of uniforms that carried very outmoded rifles, sometimes no rifles at all. And they were constantly plagued by shortages of ammunition. On the first mission that uh, Adil was sent on with his men, uh, they were allowed two rounds of ammunition each to carry out yeah, an attack on a, on a Japanese garrison. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, he roamed the highlands, uh, highland jungles with his men and he would ambush Japanese patrols. Sometimes he was ambushed himself. Uh, the Japanese uh, quickly put a price on his head. He was brash. He was sometimes foolhardy. Uh, in the book, I I kind of relate as many misadventures as, as adventures. He was still a very young man, but he was lucky to have these older, more experienced men uh, with him, serving uh, with him, who modified his impulses um, to engage the enemy at any cost. But what is most interesting is that he never lost a single man killed in, in all his time um, as a guerrilla, he was not only Amazing. bulletproof himself, but he was also safe to be near. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, from Belfast, Northern Ireland, author Fiergal McGarry will be here to discuss his book on the Irish Revolution. The, the most immediate impact of these horizons that it, it, it very gradually begins to have a shift, create a shift in political opinion in Ireland, in which Republicans and revolutionaries that, um, you know, there had been a very small kind of fringe minority that was much kind of criticised by mainstream nationalists who were home rulers who wanted a much more moderate settlement. That really begins to change because 
Britain is forced into a kind of a, a fairly kind of open, openly hostile and military suppression of Ireland. That's next time. And if you're enjoying this World War II episode, check out our earlier program about Ronald Spears and his band of brothers with author Jared Frederick. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. You'll find the link to that show in this episode's description. Getting back to the Sufi master, did he attribute some of that to um, the magic, the safety that surrounded him? Absolutely, absolutely. And his men, his men did as well. They uh, they knew he was brave, uh, but they um, and they knew he was good at what he did. But they also uh, all believed that he had something special in in uh, in his secret knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Did he teach them the secret knowledge, or did he keep the secret knowledge to himself? He kept it to himself, uh, <laughs> uh, because that was the requirement of the secret knowledge. That it could only be it could only be taught by certain masters and passed down in very specific ways. Kind of think of it sort of as a, a very old fashioned traditional martial art that was kept in the family in certain clans. Yeah. And when you uh, knew him when he was older, did he uh, did he kind of thank that Sufi instruction, the master for? helping him through some of those battles? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was, and he went on to have many more adventures and um, many more close calls uh, after uh, the war. And in every one of those, he, um, uh, he attributed to uh, the magic that he, um, that he had learned as a, a very young man. Very interesting. Now, an American school master, Edward Cooter, became a foster parent to Muhammad and later convinced the Moro to link up with General MacArthur. You mentioned that. What is uh, his connection, Cooter's connection to Muhammad? Well, uh, Edward Cooter is a, a fascinating individual as well. He's, uh, he's of course, the, um, the schoolmaster in, the, uh, in that very long subtitle of my book, and he's the second main character in the book. Uh, Cooter was a very key figure in, in this Moro, America's Moro colony, and he was also a key figure in the American guerrilla movement in Mindanao, but there's, uh, very little, there was very little known about him until I uh, did the research for the book. He was a son of uh, evangelical Lutheran missionaries from Pennsylvania. Uh, he was brought uh, to India by his mother as an infant. He spent his early years there. He then graduated, came back to the United States, uh, graduated from Roanoke College, uh, the same place his father graduated. And then in 1922, he signed up to go to the Philippines as a school headmaster, uh, which was actually uh, his father's position in India. His, his father was a missionary, but spent most of his time as a school principal. So it look, really looked like he was following in his father's footsteps in Asia. Uh, but he was really—he was also really a man of the new century. He had—he had even read some anthropology, and in particular, he wasn't—he was very much unlike his father. He was not interested in saving souls. Uh, and one of the interesting things about America's Moro uh, Muslim colony uh, was that there, the the unofficial colonial policy for that colony was 
called civilizing without Christianizing. In other words, uh, the United States uh, colonial officials, officials decided that they would not attempt to um, uh, to convert any uh, any Muslims to Christianity. And Kudu was actually the strongest proponent uh, of that policy. Mm-hmm. He was became a very strong advocate for the Moros. He was a friend to many of them. And he was a foster father to a few of them, including uh, Muhammad Adil. Um, and he and Adil became uh, uh, friends for uh, for life. When um, so in 1942, when the Japanese marched into um, into uh, Mindanao, the, in in the province where Kuder was, uh, Kuder decided to go into hiding with his moral friends rather than turn himself into Japanese authorities as. Uh, uh, as the American uh, civilians have been ordered to do. He then became the sole witness to this very amazing early armed resistance by the Moros of Lanao province. These were the people who lived around this very large uh, lake, Lanao. They were called the Maranaos. And so for the first six months of the Japanese occupation, basically from uh, from May through the end of uh, of, uh, 1942, uh, these uh, the, this moral resistance was so forceful and so effective that the Japanese uh, occupiers of, of the Lake Lanao area uh, essentially sued for a separate peace. Wow. Uh, it's, 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 it's quite an extraordinary story. And this all happened before the American-led guerrilla movement had even uh, gotten organized yet. So Kuder saw all of this, and he, and he actually helped organize some of it. And then when he finally made contact with this, the fledgling, fledgling American guerrilla forces in December of 1942, he immediately knew what they needed. He went back to Lanao, traveled around, and urged all these Moro guerrilla leaders who had won their separate peace already and whose communities were now safe from the Japanese to join the new American-led guerrilla movement. And the, he did convince them, and they did, and that was actually a primary reason for the success of that movement. Wow. They sound like quite the warrior. Uh, pretty extraordinary the moral people where are they now what is their status well that's a that's a long story and it's what i've spent much of my career writing about i went there first to talk about uh, to learn about the moros uh, the contemporary moros and how they've uh, fared um, at, at the end of the 20th century and and now in the uh, early part of this century but to give you a uh, post-war history of the moros in a nutshell uh, immediately, uh, very shortly after the war in 1946, the Philippines became an independent republic. It was actually the first Asian colony given its independence. Hmm. Um, Mindanao was still, after the war, was still mostly wild and underpopulated. Uh, and it became the focus of the new government of the republic uh, as a way, as a place to relieve the, the, all this, these political and economic pressures that were going on in the north. So the 1950s started this massive migration of people from the north into this underpopulated um, island. And, and, and most of the time they were moving into genuinely empty lands. Uh, and they got a lot of help from the government, particularly with road building. Mm-hmm. So the Moros were more surrounded than displaced. They weren't displaced from where they were, but they, they became surrounded by, by outsiders, by settlers. And they didn't receive any help from the government at all. So there, this, there was a growing disparity 
um, Mindanao in the 1950s became a, a wild frontier, right, between Moros and settlers. That really wasn't so different from the Amer from the American West in the 1850s. <laughs> there was land grabbing. There was cattle rustling. There was smuggling. Uh, there was feuding, uh, robber barons. I mean, all of it. And eventually, violence between the, the natives and the settlers. And in the middle of all of that was Muhammad Adil, who was now... Uh, keeping the peace as a, a Philippine version of a U.S. Marshal. Okay, he was, he was a, in the National Police Force, the Philippine Constabulary. So imagine Marshal Dillon or some other U.S. Marshal of the Old West, but, but um, uh, imagine if Marshal Dillon was also a Native American because, of course, yeah. Mohammed Adil was a Moro. Um, so he was in a, a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and then it becomes more fascinating in 1973 when, again, Marcos declares himself dictator, attacks the Moros in, in their homeland. And then Muhammad Adil has to choose, right, uh, what what side to take. And he, uh, not surprisingly, changes sides and, and fights against the army that he had called home for 20 years, the army that he absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a very gripping uh, story, and it happens to be my next project so uh, this that, is part two of Muhammad Adil's life that's what I was going to ask you about is you know are you going to write more about the Moros and I guess the answer is yes uh, yes uh, there's a lot more to write <laughs> <laughs> well the current book is called Moral Warrior I won't read the rest of the title I'll just call it Moral Warrior that's good Tom, <laughs> Tom thank you so much for being on the show today thank you Rob it was a great pleasure that's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, from Belfast, Northern Ireland, author Fiergal McGarry will be here to discuss his book on the Irish Revolution. The, the most immediate impact of these horizons is that it, it, it very gradually begins to have a shift, create a shift in political opinion in Ireland in which Republicans and revolutionaries, um, you know, they had been a very small kind of fringe minority that was much kind of criticised by mainstream nationalists who were home rulers who wanted a much more moderate settlement. That really begins to change because Britain is forced into a kind of a, a fairly kind of open, openly hostile and military suppression of Ireland. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.